We're all following the news about a potential government shutdown. What are the politics? I'm Matt Robeson. It's Beyond Politics, available wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, on the Blue Amp channel on YouTube. Delighted to welcome back our friends at Navigator Research who do some outstanding work in polling, focus grouping, and understanding attitudes that Americans, American voters bring to the table. Uh, first of all, really glad to have back Ian Smith, who uh, we just had you last month, Director of Polling Analytics for Navigator Research, and you lead the Navigating the Battleground Survey Project. And Brian Bennett, you you are the lead pollster for Navigator. I'm. This is an honor, and welcome to the show. Thanks for having us on. So, you guys just did some focus grouping on this question of how do people feel about the fact that our entire government might shut down? I want to get into your top line takeaways. I, boy, one of them we were talking right before we got on the show is don't talk about process, talk about substance. Let's start with process, though, for just a second. What did you do here? How did you do this research to try and were you trying to figure out and why did you do the research this way? Sure, I can take this. So we conducted four focus groups just last week in Omaha, Detroit, and Pittsburgh with weak Democrats who aren't strongly strongly loyal to their partisan affiliation and independent voters. And part of the reason why we wanted to talk to those voters is that to your point about process and not wanting to hear about it, a lot of voters in general have not really heard about a government shutdown until very recently. And so we wanted to talk to independents and Democrats who probably should be on the side of not shutting down the governments, but who have just not heard a lot to understand some of the kind of messaging nuances about the debate. Interestingly, the findings of the of the focus groups were consistent regardless of partisan affiliation. The main kind of takeaway was people do not really want uh, a shutdown. They see a lot of the stakes of the debate of a shutdown as being one focus group respondent said stupid. And why did they think it was stupid? Because they didn't really understand what the the terms were and how the connection between spending priorities of the federal government and impeaching Biden or funding a border wall. They wanted they want to see government work for them, and they just really didn't understand a lot of of those kinds of debates. They see the they see a shutdown as a as a symbol of broken government, and they really want there to be bipartisan cooperation, at least in the ability to be able to fund the federal government's priorities, including Social Security, education, in particular, veterans benefits, and so on and so forth. So let me just read that back to you for a second. What you were trying to figure out here is you want to talk to the kinds of voters in the kinds of places who Democrats need to win, should win in the next election. These are voters who may not be like super tied to the Democratic Party. So they're potentially open to persuasion. And you wanted to figure out information, what news are, is breaking through to them? What messages are they taking out of the news? And what messages will be most important for Democrats to convey to them to help explain and focus them on the meaning of a government shutdown? Yeah, absolutely. And just to say a little bit more about why we picked those areas. We've yeah, why Omaha, man? Omaha might be kind of come as a little bit of a surprise, but Nebraska's second congressional district is one of the kind of key swing districts where Biden won 
um, that district, but is currently represented by a Republican. Same with Michigan 10, um, and same in a lot of the Pittsburgh suburban areas where we recruited a lot of these participants. And we're not just thinking about um, in terms of the presidential battleground, but also in terms of, especially with our Navigating the Battleground project, which Ian can talk a little bit more about. We're also thinking about areas where this debate is basically centered in the House of Representatives. And so we really wanted to think through the the middle of the road of the House of Representatives, which is very narrow, but it does exist, and who might get to 218 in order to be able to fund the government. So despite our general presidential myopia, look, we have federal myopia in the Democratic Party, let's be clear, but despite our general federal and presidential myopia, there are other branches of government and other elections that go on. And so you're looking at swing areas for the House of Representatives and for the U.S. Senate, and you chose Omaha because it's one of those districts that's not only important for the House of Representatives, but also Nebraska is one of those two states that splits their electoral votes. I actually happened to work in Congress for a member of Congress who represented the other one, main second congressional district, about 20 years ago. So the politics there are actually a decent barometer for what you might expect in a swing area that you focus on, Ian, right? Like these battleground areas for the U.S. House of Representatives. Totally. And really, this while this voter is unique, it's a kind of a broader, what I call it a microscope for the broader electorate, right? And we can get into some of this in a little bit, but we're really educating these folks on shutdown. When it comes to some of these groups, right, we have maybe one participant per group, Brian, who was shut down as when we're volunteering, hey, what's going on in the country today? And one person will be like, loosely have heard about it. But once we get into it, what really matters is um, the impacts and what Republicans are actually proposing here for their quote unquote deals, right? But to Brian's point, it's less about the process, more about the impacts here. And I promise I'm about to stop breaking your number one rule, which is don't focus on the process. People are super bored about this. But because I'm an uber nerd, you did a focus group, not a poll. People are used to seeing polls on things like this. Why a focus group? Do, what were you? What type of information are you trying to get by doing a focus group? I mean, we and we've had you on before talking about dial testing, and of course, we're all used to talking about polls. Why focus grouping for looking at a question like this? We've actually done both. Kind of bookending this focus group, we had a survey come out right before the focus group, kind of testing atmospherics on the shutdown. And then we do the focus group to get real language, real knowledge from the ground, right? The qualitative research is all about putting messaging and getting back voters in their own words, their own thoughts, gauging that impact of your messaging, of what's happening in the day. And we just thought that was really important specifically to land that plane on what voters are actually talking about, right? And yeah, I don't know, Brian can add on here, but we thought it was really important to like in this moment for us uber nerds to hear what actual voters are thinking, right? And they see this as tit for tat. They see this as another Washington fight, but it's all coming to a head and it might start to affect them in ways that are personal, like for Social Security, Medicare, K through 12 funding, et cetera. Yeah, the only thing I would add is just that in some of the surveys that we did leading up to doing the focus groups, so even like the survey we did right after Labor Day, we would ask a question, it's like, how much have you heard, seen, or read about a government shutdown? The right. percent said a lot was 11, 11% when the country is three weeks from a shutdown at that point. And in part, 
I think one of the things that we wanted to really think through is getting people in a room who haven't, who, who might be a little bit more engaged with politics, but may mm. not really understand or be, you know, following the the ins and outs and machinations of what's happening in Washington to really hear what they're saying about what is it like if giving them a little bit of context and saying, what does this mean to you? And having them give some like real reaction to it that might be a little bit harder to simulate in a survey environment. I'm ready to move on. We, I want to talk about what you guys found. I will say that I just always find focus group research interesting. It doesn't have the, maybe it's a, an illusion of precision of polling research and deep quantitative research. And we're so used to the Nate Silver of polling data. But what you get from focus groups is organically in the language that voters themselves use and think in. And it makes me think back to that 1992 presidential debate moment where a voter asked George H.W. Bush, president at the time, how the deficit had affected him personally in his life. Now, what she meant was the recession. She meant the economy. Now, this was clearly a voter who had prepared to participate in a presidential debate, but this was the kind of thing that like nerds and political insiders were like, you mean the recession, clearly. But it was a really organic moment that went to show that voters are not thinking in the same terms that economists use and that pollsters use and that political professionals use. So anyway, all right, preamble done. Brian, you began to get into this a moment ago. What did you find? How are voters thinking about the prospect of a government shutdown? A couple of things. First, I'd like to zoom out for to do a little bit more of a 30,000 foot view on this whole thing, because we've done a lot of research on other inflection points of congressional debate, whether it be over the government shutdown or the debt ceiling earlier this year. And I really think that there's ultimately three guiding principles that progressives and Democrats should keep in mind that are relevant for all of these debates and will outlast any individual single flashpoint. The first, and these are all come from our research. The first is that the public doesn't just not want spending cuts. The public wants more public investment. When we have tested a number of potential cuts to different programs, the public generally universally is opposed to almost all of them. And in particular, ones that are focused on education, social security, Medicare, veterans benefits, nutrition assistance, clean clean water. There's almost a universal opposition to all of those programs, which are the very ones that are the ones that Republicans are trying to cut in this particular shutdown, which I think is relevant, but are also the kind of things that were at stake in the debt ceiling fight, where we found that things like the people, the things that people were most concerned about in if we had gone over the cliff were delays in payments to Social Security and Medicare, to delays in, in payments to, to veterans, and a huge increase in the rise of, of unemployment, which are all related to a lot of the negative vibes in the economy. So that's one. Say, focus on what is the rationale for increasing public investment, not decreasing it. Second is how to do that, which is people want there to be a the, the wealthy and the corporations to pay their fair share in taxes, to pay more in order to be able to not only maintain, but increase that public investment. Overwhelmingly, even Republicans want to raise taxes on the wealthy and corporations. And so that's an important 
piece of the puzzle. And then the third thing is whenever we're talking about these kinds of issues about whether it's shutdown, debt ceiling, whatever legislative minutia is happening in Washington, please always talk about who is at stake and the people that need these programs. Do not talk about the process. Like I said earlier, 11% were following a lot about the government shutdown in an early September survey. There's a lot, there's so much alienation from the the mainstream media from from federal politics that it's a lot of people just don't want to be engaged and having those kinds of discussions makes people want to be less engaged what pe- makes people want to be more engaged is understanding how government will work for people like them which is how all three of these principles fold into each other and to bring it down to the more like micro moment or point that we're in now I think a healthy way to talk about that is using those frames, right? One, what's at stake here? Why are we in this place? Republicans are holding Social Security, Medicare, education funding hostage, abortion access hostage in this moment to block what is essentially a spending resolution, right? And when we put it in those terms, one, we're met with, in this focus group, we're met with some initial confusion. Brian alluded to that earlier. What does abortion medication access have to do with funding our government, right? But to educate these folks, we have to tell them that's exactly where the debate is at for some Republicans in the House, right? A little processy, but again, we're talking about the broader impacts. But yeah, when we get down to brass tacks there and tell them exactly what frame this debate is in, this is not just more Democratic and Republican tit for tat as voters come to the table with those assumptions. This is a specific attack on some of the things that you hold true and pushing back on that public investment that you want to see while creating more dysfunction. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. Hey, it's Matt. You may have heard my recent guest, Matt McNeil, an outstanding progressive radio host out of Minnesota. And you might be thinking, I wish there were a show like that where I live. Well, you can listen to The Matt McNeil Show streamed live every weekday from 3 to 5 p.m. on AM 950 KTNF, Minneapolis, St. Paul. Or you can get the podcast of The Matt McNeil Show wherever you get your podcasts. I want to read you something that Republican Senator Susan Collins of Maine said this morning, historically, Republicans have been blamed, she said. So whether you look at it through a policy or a political lens, a shutdown is never beneficial. I think she means politically for Republicans. Is that true? Historically, have voters blamed Republicans for shut- it is true, at least in the more, most contemporary context. For example, when the government shut down in 2019, we did a survey back then, right after the shutdown ended, that had Trump and Republicans being blamed for the shutdown by a 14-point margin. And that was after a six-week or five-week protracted government shutdown. In 2013, I believe, the Republicans were blamed for that shutdown, largely because Ted Cruz became kind of the face of, of that shutdown. And so I think it is true. That said, I would say, that we can't predict we can't predict the future when we've asked about blame on the shutdown i think one important piece of context is that because a lot of people aren't paying attention to it we'll find that i think in our most recent survey voters were basically divided between initially blaming biden democrats republicans in congress or blaming both equally so the starting point is a lot of voters either going to their partisan camps or saying like the focus groups found, symbol of broken government, both parties are to blame, pox on both of their houses. So it's incumbent upon uh, Democrats and progressives to keep in mind what are these important frames for the debate should we get into that moment. And 
my, I think a particularly telling data point from one of our surveys is we looked at that audience of people who say that they blame both parties right now for the shutdown. And by partisan composition of that group, they're not really overwhelmingly Democratic or overwhelmingly Republicans, even split of Democrats, independents, and Republicans. But when you look at a lot of the messaging arguments and their concern about a government shutdown, they're actually even more than the overall electorate concerned about potential the, the potential for um, there to be uh, cuts to programs or delays in payments, which says to me, on at least on some level, that intuitively they might be like the the blame for this might land more on Republicans' plates um, in the you know, days and weeks to come once the government actually does shut down. But there's also a communication issue that needs to to happen there, which is why Democrats and progressives should be keeping in mind what are the actual things that are at stake that matter to people, not the process, um, and talking about why we need to have more public investment and not and and doing so by raising taxes on the wealthy corporations. I want to drill down a little bit further on that last point there. There's a great SNL skit with Keenan Thompson that he does on Weekend Update from time to time where he just plays a guy whose whole line is, just fix it. Whatever the problem is, just fix it, which it's marginally funny. He does better skits, but it makes a really good underlying point about there is a, definitely a strain of that in American voter sentiment. And I felt like I picked up some of it in some of the responses that you put into your report here. You have a uh, Nebraska woman saying, it feels like toddlers. I'm going to take my ball and go home unless you come back here. And again, that makes me dislike all these members of Congress. There is a definite plague on both their houses vibe to this. So I want to talk a little bit about where this might go. Let's say we do have a shutdown. Who knows how long it'll go? All shutdowns are not created equal. But there's one, I could lay out a case that initially, you know, who knows who the public will blame. Maybe they will lean slightly more toward blaming Republicans, as you just laid out, as they have historically done. But over time, it might have more of this plague on both their houses vibe to it. They might simply say, I hate what's happening to my paycheck. I hate what's happening to the economy. I hate what's happening to the loss of services. I'm going to blame the party that's in charge. The personification of the government in, in our system is the president. And so I'm blaming Joe Biden. I'm blaming the Democrats. This will not wear well for Democrats. Or I could make a case that it would go the other way. And I think that's what you're laying out is that Democrats with some work can make a very compelling case that it's really that all of those things that won't wear well, voters will conclude, hey, it's Republicans who are really against us having these things. This is really their fault. Where do you see this going based on the responses you've gotten in your research? I think specifically on the shutdown, much like the debt ceiling debate, we're, we'll be in a place, this is knocking on wood, we'll be in a place a quarter from now where the shutdown is less relevant at conversation at that moment in time than Republicans' actual priorities, right? I think there's some train of thought where no matter what's happening in the economy, the president, the layman voter will hold the president responsible for that to some degree, right? But ultimately, it's going to come down to where we can land on messaging and whether or not we can let voters know that we're the party who cares about increasing your social security and Medicare benefits and doing that by, among others, and doing that by making billionaires and corporations pay their fair share. And that's the fight we've been in since 2008, really. So long-term, 
the shutdown will not be a pillar of messaging for the Democratic Party. But long term, the consequences of the shutdown, the debt ceiling, and any other kind of spending negotiations we have will be where we able to land the plane and frame Republicans' priorities here, which is cutting spending and cutting benefits for the average American to benefit billionaires and big corporations. We're, if we're able to do that, then I think we're leaving here better than we started, albeit that curse on both of our parties is the thought of more dysfunction on Capitol Hill, which we do see no matter what topic we're discussing in focus groups. Even when we're doing abortion focus groups, there seems for the average voter to be some sort of common sense there that both parties aren't able to agree to. And you have to educate them to tell them that Republicans are pushing back against that. But ultimately, this is a framing conversation for the long term and less of a shutdown conversation for the long term. So let me read that back to you. This has a real neo matrix. There is no spoon vibe to it. What you're saying is the best way for Democrats to talk about the shutdown is there is no spoon. Don't talk about the shutdown. It's not really about that. That goes back to Brian's 30,000 foot view from the very beginning, which is voters tire very quickly about the word shutdown. It just sounds to them like your kids fighting in the back of the car. Stop it. Just stop it. I don't want to hear it. What Democrats need to be talking about is the core issues underlying it, which is access to abortion, gay marriage, the, the impeachment follies, and the, the real effects on people's lives, social security, paychecks, those kinds of underlying issues that ultimately what Democrats need to do to be successful in winning that kind of long-term tale is talking about those issues, not getting focused on the shutdown qua the shutdown, because that's something that voters might tune out on. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that the shutdown is important. We say all of this to highlight what should be the focus, but ultimately this is a shutdown. This is a, a huge moment for voters once they're made aware, right? Um, we even had a woman who was like brought to tears because she was her employment is actually so closely related to government funding and a shutdown would directly affect her almost immediately. So I'm not saying that we should be ignoring the shutdown, but let's focus on the why, not the what here. And the, the other piece of that too is that we haven't really talked that much about just like the general vibes in the economy and the strong negative economic sentiment that people have about the state of the economy today. It's not that surprising that a lot of the strongest arguments that kind of push back on the notion of we need spending cuts or government shutdown to force those spending cuts, the strongest arguments generally focus on we can't hurt working families at a time when the economy is bad. We can't take away benefits or programs from people who need it when costs have been rising. And also that's, an, that's another, I don't want to say opportunity is the wrong word, but like in this, if this debate is thrust upon Democrats and progressives to have to litigate, I think also linking it to why those programs are important to people in, th in this economy when people are feeling uneasy about their personal financial situations is critical. Do you hear much in the focus groups or in your other research about some of the high profile strikes that are going on? I'm curious about how people are viewing those kinds of issues through this general lens of, of how they're thinking about the economy. We've had this kind of longstanding trend of the measurables. What did, what did the Bush Treasury Secretary say? The fundamentals of the economy are strong. The fundamentals of the economy are strong from an economist standpoint. Growth is good. We have historically 50-year low unemployment, massive job creation. Honestly, I think from an 
economist standpoint, the way that the plane has been landed, Joe Biden and the Federal Reserve, is pretty remarkable. It's pretty miraculous. The economy is doing well. People hate the economy. They're not feeling great about the economy, and that's largely because of inflation. And I can talk until I'm blue in the face, and I'm about to for about 15 seconds, about the fact that when you compare us to our to the biggest economies, the G7 economies in the world, we have had the strongest growth in the last two years. We have had the fastest decrease in inflation because inflation has been a worldwide phenomenon and our inflation rate has gone the lowest compared to all of those benchmark economies. We're doing the best in the world at managing the aftermath of the pandemic-induced recession, but Americans don't feel that way. So let's get this back to people's personal economic experience. As you just said, Brian, it's a time of rising costs, and yet you have workers in two major industries on strike asking for pretty substantial wage concessions. How do people feel about that? How do people feel about Joe Biden joining the picket line for the UAW? That's really interesting. And Personally, I can't say that I I know because Joe Biden did that yesterday and I haven't been in the field. <laughs> you're a data scientist and you're going to go with it where the data leads. So don't want to put um, you on the spot to have conjecture. But we did recently ask a few questions about both not just the UAW strike, but also about the writer strike in Hollywood that fortunately it seems to have ended and in both cases most americans over, by over pretty overwhelming shares and I, I might even say i was a little surprised by how overwhelming the shares were were on the side of workers not not the mm. companies or the hollywood studios they were very much in favor of workers being able to stand up now it's not surprising in the sense that we, last month we actually did a deeper dive on perceptions of labor unions and found that over 7 in 10 americans think that that employees should have the right to collect Collectively bargain should fight have be able to have worker power in order to negotiate better pay, health benefits, etc. And that there's overwhelmingly favorable views. I think also Gallup found that I think 67% of Americans are favorable or approve of the job that labor unions are doing. And I, honestly, I think that's a reflection of where we are in this moment, which is that the pandemic and everything associated with it, I think made a lot of people reflect on what does it mean to be a worker in society today? And are there kind of fundamental rights that workers should fight for in order to be able to do their job with dignity? And that's exactly what a lot of these fights, yeah, even with the, the, I know there have been a lot of discussions about is the, what the UAW is asking for in terms of wage increases is, is so ridiculous. We'll compare that to the amount of profits that executives at auto companies have been making for the last 30 years at the same time when they've almost been like literally the audio industry almost failed 15 years ago. It was the workers who, who stood behind it um, and were able to work uh, during a financial crisis in order to help get through that and bring the auto industry back. I guess maybe I shouldn't be super surprised, but all, all told, all Americans are overwhelmingly supportive of workers in these kinds of disputes. And they really believe they work, right? Let's take a break. We'll be right back. Like part of what backs W, the rioter strike, is what people see as being the impacts of these unions. 70% of folks believe wages to people in unions increase when they're under unions. Workplace safety increases. 70% believe workplace safety increases to folks under unions. PTO and paid time off and family leave increases when folks are under unions. So essentially, Americans are seeing the impacts and benefits of what union membership gives them. And I think unions have earned trust there from the general public when, when it comes to these initiatives. Oh, and, and one, 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 other, one other small uh, data point, which I thought was absolutely just 
really underscores the importance of of unions is we actually did a we asked it we asked a question how do you feel about how, how do you how confident do you feel about your personal financial situation a few months from now among the country overall about 40 percent said that they felt confident in their personal financial situation among those living in union households that number was 57 because which is very much higher than overall and in large part that's driven by the fact that they have they have that union they have the ability they have people who have their backs. And I think that's exactly indicative of what the kind of thing we want to see in employment in America across the country, which is not just feeling like you're completely isolated in this moment when you are seeing rising costs and such, but that if you want to advocate for yourself, if you want to be able to get have confidence in your paycheck, in your benefits, and that gives you a little bit of additional security, that's what union household members are experiencing more than the country overall. So here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to put a summary bow on your findings about the political impact of a shutdown. And I think it's from a Democrat's perspective, a generally good news story, a generally positive story. And then I have a bonus question and I'm gonna harsh everyone's buzz. Sound good? Yes. All right, so my, my, my sum up is what I'm hearing from you guys is based on your research, your polling and your focus grouping. It is true historically that voters have tended to blame Republicans more than Democrats. And you're also finding that there is a very strong, effective, and by the way, very true message available to Democrats here if we do end up in a shutdown about the underlying effects and what this will do to people and that voters in general identify with that, they, it resonates with them, at least in, in your research targets here, the kinds of voters that we're going to need to focus on in upcoming congressional and presidential uh, elections, that there are strong available messages to Democrats. So all things being equal, politically speaking, it is advantage Democrats if we end up in a shutdown. Is that a fair summary? I would say that's fair. I think it's incumbent on Democrats landing that message, right? The awareness is going to build up we're not even at, I don't, I used to play football, so I put things in game terms. We're not even at the game yet, right? We went from 11%. From we just had the coin toss. Yeah. We went from 11% awareness or top line awareness of people who were seeing, they've heard a lot about the shutdown last week to 20% or two weeks ago to 26% this week. I think starting Monday is when we'll actually start to see these things develop and crystallize and it's going to be incumbent on Democrats and messengers to land this plane here. And also, I don't think anybody benefits from a prolonged shutdown. I think it's going to be toxic for both houses here. So to be determined, but as always, there is potential. All right, let's pick up here. Here comes the part where I, I try and bring in a real bummer. I want to pick up on something you just said, Ian. Long term, there is this kind of plague on both their houses vibe to all of this. It's struck me in recent weeks as we've seen shenanigans on the Republican side, histrionics and incoherence, not to mention some just like downright icky behavior. I'm thinking of Lauren Boebert and a, a Denver theater here. When these kinds of things come up, when Matt Gates essentially through an act of political piracy takes over the helm of the House of Representatives and says, we're gonna shut down the government for reasons I can't fully explain. It has something to do with immigration and maybe Ukraine, I, I don't know. It would seem on the surface from that, that 
this is bad for Republicans. It's bad for the Republican brand. You, in fact, asked a series of questions in your focus grouping about Marjorie Taylor Greene. The, she's the avatar of everything crazy and unlikable about the Republican Party. You have a Michigan woman saying everything that comes out of her mouth seems to be uneducated and negative. So I tune out almost anything that's coming from her now. Here's my question. I've begun to worry that in a short-term sense, all of this bad behavior from Republicans hurts the Republican Party and hurts the Republican brand. But in a long-term kind of meta sense, I worry that Americans are increasingly tuning out what's happening in politics and government. I have a politics show that I do on podcasts, and I have the video version, and I also listen to a lot of sports podcasts. Sports podcasts are fun. I enjoy listening to sports podcasts, and I try and bring in some of those elements to my politics podcasts. It doesn't work because politics isn't that much fun these days. It's deadly serious. It's about issues like the continuation of the country and whether an authoritarian like Donald Trump is going to be president again. And what will that mean for those of us who want to live in this country and have children here? It's pretty rough. What I worry about, and this is the nub of my question to you, is that all of this negativity and all of the ways that our politicians like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Gates and Lauren Boebert are acting out in crazy ways. And there is the, the debate isn't about those underlying issues of policy, the underlying things that affect people's lives. The debate is about who's acting crazier, who's being more incoherent. I worry that it makes Americans tune out more. And what's left, it's harder to break through with the kind of messages you're talking about here to the kind of voters that you're focused on in this focus group. These loosely affiliated, probably not super high information voters, the kinds of voters who hold the future of the country in their hands with their votes. More and more, all they hear is the noise, like the kids fighting in the back of the car, and they tune out. And that's a disadvantage for Democrats. That's a disadvantage for people who take government and politics seriously. That the long-term effect of this is only the crazies being involved in the process and us being essentially subject to their electoral power. Unless the people in the middle who are trying to lead their lives and have a major stake in the outcomes of the, these kinds of government processes. I hope I summed up my concern in a clear enough way there, but it is fundamentally that all of this, maybe it is short-term advantage, politically speaking, for Democrats. In the long term, I worry about how corrosive it is, and I worry that it actually, paradoxically, empowers the crazies. What do you make of my worry? So I think I have some, I share some of your concerns, but I'll try to leave you with some at least a little bit of optimism on some of these questions. Yes, um, this is the therapy I'm looking for. I'm, I'm happy to help. So lay down on the couch. I think you're. I think you're absolutely right that this is part of the conservative and Republican strategy. It always has been. It is the undermining of public institutions is a key a piece of whether it is the federal government or whether it's Congress, or the presidency, education. There, there, are, there are doctors, uh, science, uh, medical knowledge. Exactly. It's under this leads to people then questioning, oh, where am I getting my information from? Then that leads to reducing confidence in the media and people going to do their own research. So I think that is a that is super, super corrosive. And I think that is a 
trend that we're not going to be able to solve. No one is going to be able to solve for that on a short time horizon by like 2024. That trend has been around for a long time. It will continue for the foreseeable future. And I think it is incumbent that we really, as a society, deal with that head on. But that's probably a more systemic fight for a longer time horizon another day. The optimism that I somewhat take is that if you look at certain examples in the way, and I'm not, I can't predict the future, and Donald Trump certainly could be elected president in 2024, and all of that is, I want to be clear that this is not, I, I don't want to be um, overly rosy. But if past this prologue, since January 6th, for example, we have seen a large societal rejection of of MAGA extremism, I guess we'll call it. And that's not just manifested in people saying in a survey, oh, I don't like what they did attacking the Capitol that day. Um, that's man which should have been a terrible election by the fundamentals compared to historical standards. Democrats significantly overperformed. And in part, that was due to the Dobbs decision, in large part, that was due to the Dobbs decision that overturned Roe versus Wade and the salience of abortion as an issue in that election. But there, there also was the fact that every single major candidate for who was an election denier for the U.S. Senate or for Secretary of State lost their election. I don't think that's a coincidence in those particular battleground states that have been so key. In a special elections as in this cycle from uh, 2023 and 2020, or it's in the 2023, just this year, Democrats have overperformed the fundamentals in 18 of 24 elections that have happened, if I recall correctly. And whether or not there there may be the trade-off of more extremism leads to people tuning out, which creates kind of the paradoxical effect of them not realizing necessarily what's at stake. That certainly is, I think, a risk and probably will be a factor for some voters. I think also the the fact that there is this omnipresent extremism, people don't want that either. And if they are like detecting it even on the margins, I think they've become a little bit reviled to it. And that is the like how that nets out between those two dynamics. I have no idea, but I'm somewhat encouraged by recent election results in that regard. And I think that if you have a record um, for, let's just take the presidential, for example, of if Biden's argument is, yeah, I'm old, but I also passed a generational uh, level of um, legislative uh, agendas that are making, or uh, policies that are making lives better for people like you and brought the economy back from the pandemic versus whatever the Trump argument is, um, which I don't think is going to be very grounded in policy and will probably result have a few threats to people's lives and whatever. Um, I think that the, for the voters in the middle who are not super tuned in, it seems to me more likely that they're going to probably go more towards the Democratic side than the Republican side in that particular scenario. But we'll see. And I think that your concerns are valid, but I also think that just the omnipresent Republican extremism concerns are out there. And those two dynamics will go at one another for, for the, in the course of the next year. A masterful answer because you both validated that I'm not totally crazy, but you also made me feel like a little better, like marginally better, not large, not like big time, but how would Trump put it? Bigly better, but a little bit better. <laughs> You're basically saying that Democrats 
Wheaties could beat Fruit Loops in 2024, but long-term, who knows? All right, gentlemen, thank you so much for running down all of this with us. It's super fascinating. We're going to obviously keep a very close eye on this, and we will see. Who knows? This thing may go on for quite a while, and we may be having this discussion. Oh, my gosh, I can't believe I'm saying this. Months from now, in which case, we will have to have you back. Thank you both so much. Thank you. Thank you for having us.